Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Chris Martinson. He's a PhD and MBA, an economic researcher and futurist, specializing in energy and resource depletion. He has a website, which is peakprosperity.com, and he's come out with a new book called The Crash Course, The Unsustainable Future of Our Economy, Energy, and the Environment. Welcome to the show, Chris. Jordan, it's good to be with you today. So I gave a little bit of your background, but give us a little bit further, the background you've had leading up to this book and a little bit about your uh, website, peakprosperity.com. Sure. It, you know, uh, this all started with a, a piece of enlightened self-interest. There I was uh, being a vice president of a large corporation, 2001 and two. I've seen my savings get shredded, and I wanted to understand things a little better, so I started digging around in the economy. I found things there that frightened me, quaint those, those numbers were compared to today, things like debt and unfunded liabilities. That kicked off a whole period of inquiry. I started looking at uh, the economy and then energy and then the environment, putting them into a story. And my background, PhD researcher, then I got an MBA, was in corporate finance and strategy consulting for a while. So, so I, I know numbers. I like data. That's really uh, what the Crash Course book is about. That's what our website, Peak Prosperity, is about, is what is the data telling us and the punchline is that our current way of doing things is unsustainable. We think there's going to be big changes coming as a result. So tell us a little bit about your website, peakprosperity.com. What can people find there? Uh, what kind of resources are available? And just tell us a little bit more about what's at that website. Sure. There's uh, two big parts to it. Uh, one big part is, is all around just examining the data that we've got at hand. We're looking at energy data. We're looking at environmental data. We're looking at economic data mainly. We look at a lot of things financial. And that's where a group of people organize and, and just come to discuss the data. So we have a whole community there. And a lot of resources there for people who just want to understand where we are today, where we're probably going and then another big part is all around a community of people who are there to wrestle with the implications of that. Everything from uh, raising chickens to where should they put their retirement money to what kind of college education might they consider or not. Things like that. So there are a lot of implications to the story we tell. It really it touches everything. Very good. So let's start uh, at the beginning of your new book. You talk about how to approach the next 20 years. So in general, I think there's a kind of a consensus that things are getting better, the U.S. economy is growing faster, uh, oil prices falling is a big tailwind and going to be very positive for consumers, uh, the Federal Reserve has stopped quantitative easing, so things are getting better, um, the deficit is down. I could go through a whole series of things why things seem to be getting better in the popular press. Uh, what is wrong with that scenario as you see it? Well, you know, there's a, a lot of other side to that data that we could look at as well. Things I happen to believe that that the economic uh, prosperity that we enjoyed in the United States was due to a, a large and stable and prosperous middle class, which is getting increasingly squeezed. Uh, you know, now, that, I mean, to be considered middle class in a city, you have to be earning at least six figures minimum uh, just to afford a place. And uh, not everybody does, obviously. So so we're looking at this data saying, here's here's the bigger part of this story. The Federal Reserve has just dumped in lots and lots and lots of money, and they've dumped it into the financial centers of the world. And the financial centers, God bless them, they said these guys need savings, so they saved them. And that's given us buoyant financial asset prices. We've got stocks at all-time highs or nearabouts, uh, and then we've got bonds at all-time highs or very close to. And, and so financial assets have recovered, but what hasn't recovered is what we'll call the real economy, the place where the broad middle class lives. Yes, it's nice to have a tailwind of cheaper gas prices, but on the other side, the, the gas producers are going to be uh, in a lot of difficulty around that. What we didn't see in this so-called recovery was huge investments back into property, plant, and equipment, the kinds of things that will give us uh, robust growth in our economy. It was really, Jordan, in a lot of cases, it was a statistical it was the best statistical recovery money could buy, but it just isn't enough to get us out of this situation cheap oil is no longer possible to find and produce. And we're about to see uh, just how, how true that statement is with the shale producers trying to survive uh, with oil prices well below their all-in cost of production. It, it's it's going to be uh, quite messy and, and chaotic over the next few years around that story. Were you expecting oil prices to fall as much as they have since you're an expert in energy? 
No, absolutely not. Caught me completely by surprise. Uh, usually, so supply and demand are something that we track very carefully, and there's not a big supply-demand mismatch right now. You look at uh, oil stocks inside the United States, uh, well below or at least below the five-year range of average, same for natural gas. There, there's no huge supply glut here in the United States. Worldwide, I wasn't seeing the same thing. So uh, usually there's a, a pretty tight relationship, supply and demand. What I think this oil data is telling us, though, if it, it, to the extent that the oil data isn't a geopolitical move to, to drive a stake into Russia, uh, to the extent that this is real, the oil data is telling us that world economic uh, growth is actually much weaker than advertised. My best guess for who's, it, who's most responsible would be China at this stage. So it's really telling it, it, the, the price is going down because of the demand side, not as much as the supply side. Right. The supply side's been actually fairly narrow for a, a very long time. If you strip out the United States, the world has produced exactly zero more barrels per day of crude and condensate. Uh, that's just what, what we call petroleum. Uh, in the last eight years. And that's after spending $3.8 trillion to try and get more out of the ground. So the world is kind of treading water, spending a lot of money. The United States was the only place that had a bump in production, but it was only enough to, to, to bump world production by a few percent. Just that doesn't few. count Canada with the, oil, the tar sands? That, that's Because uh, that's been a big new addition as well, hasn't it? It has, uh, but if you put Canada into the whole rest of the world, Canada's additions, which, which have been positive, have been offset by declines elsewhere. So the whole world, X the U.S., is dead flat since 2005 in oil production. I see. And how much has the U.S. added through the, uh, the shale revolution? About 3 million barrels a day, roughly. So is, but that's not enough to create a surplus. I mean, people say we're swimming in oil. That's not really true is what you're saying. No, that, that's, that's not enough to create a, a massive supply um, overage at this particular point in time. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that the market has gone from $100 or so to 50 I think it even dropped below 50 a little bit today, um, because of a uh, demand uh, shrinkage in, in Europe and an anticipated demand shrinkage in China. It hasn't actually happened yet, but the, the market is forecasting less demand from China. Is that what you're saying? Uh, that that's the implication of this. Unfortunately, we it's very very hard to come by uh, what I consider to be reliable international oil supply statistics. So we do the best we can. Uh, but I hadn't seen anything that was triggering early warnings in me that we were having a lot of supply overages. Now in 2008, we had the same scenario. July of we saw oil go to 147 a barrel. But at the same time, what we were seeing in there, we were seeing tankers parked uh, with just loaded with crude, just parked, one after the other, whole lines of them. So we were getting lots of warning coming up into July that the world was oversupplied and that the price was too high, and that's a, that's a double whammy right there, um, and, uh, and the rest was history. So we're, I, didn't, I wasn't getting those signals this time, so it caught me by surprise. So is that happening now, that uh, t tankers are going to be parked because they want to wait out these low prices? Well, if, if they're going to, I haven't seen the evidence of it yet, so still waiting to see if those stories are going to emerge. So what is your longer-term view? You have a lot in your book about energy. With prices where they are now, are they going to go lower and then go higher? What is the long-term view you have on energy? Yeah, lower than higher. Here's why. Uh, you know, Barring a, a, a very, very large world economic decline or recession slash major depression, something that really kills demand, the world basically is a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week, 365-day-a-year oil-burning machine. I mean, if you've been any, go to any cities, everywhere I travel in the world, was just down in Lima a little while ago, Mexico City, uh, they're just crammed with cars, right? It, this is how it is across the globe. Beijing is crammed, New York is crammed, everywhere you go. So oil is very much still in demand, and we still use a lot of it. And as long as that's normal, and we're going to have normal economic uh, functioning in the world, then yes, we're going to have possibly lower oil prices for a while, and then in a year or two at the outside, we're going to have a supply sh uh, issue that's going to hit us and hit us hard because it's not just the shale drillers who pulled in the rigs at this point in time uh, and are really dialing back their capital spends for the next year, but it was the deep water, the ultra deep water. Uh, Jordan, the number of oil projects out there that are that are worth prosecuting with oil at 50 a barrel is probably maybe a third of the number that we would need just to keep the oil output steady because the existing fields all across the world are declining at about 4% a year. And that means we have three to four million barrels per day per year 
that we need to find and replace in new production, that's not happening right now with oil at 50. Just to stay even, yeah. Very good. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Chris Martinson. Uh, he is a Ph.D. and MBA. His new book is called The Crash Course, The Unsustainable Future of Our Economy, Energy, and the Environment. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. It's a sad fact that fraud is rampant in today's business environment. The headlines scream about once prestigious organizations falling victim to or crumbling due to the consequences of fraud. How do you keep fraud from affecting you and your business? Tune in to Fraud Talk with host Chris Marquet. Chris has over 30 years of fraud investigation experience, business intelligence, and is a renowned security consultant. Chris and his guests will inform you and help keep you from being the next statistic of fraud. Tune in Mondays at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. Listen for exclusive clips from Oprah's upcoming Super Soul Sunday series on Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America 7th Wave channel. Then be sure to watch Oprah's Super Soul Sunday on OWN Network TV at 11 a.m., 10 Central, every Sunday. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Chris Martinson. He's the author of a new book called The Crash Course, The Unsustainable Future of Our Economy, Energy, and the Environment. And his website is peakprosperity.com. Welcome back to the show, Chris. Thank you, Jordan. So we want to talk a little bit about this oil situation a little bit more. So with oil down to $50 or thereabouts, what does that do to the economic viability of a lot of these shale and other projects around the world? Well, it, it absolutely burns them to a crisp. A lot of these shale operators, in fact, all of the major shale operators that I track, a, a pool of about 80 of them, were uh, experiencing something called negative free cash flow for the past five years, in each of those five years. Now, uh, I like to see mature companies uh, generating positive free cash flow. And what that free cash flow metric is, is you take operating earnings and you subtract from that the capital that they have to spend in order to keep those, those earnings coming. And on average, these companies were spending about $1.20 in capital to get a dollar of revenue. And the idea was that I guess at some point they would just sit down, stop drilling wells, stop pouring that capital in, and then they would be these cash machines. Well, I plug all these numbers into my fancy spreadsheets, you know, and uh, take a quick peek. And these companies, many of them cannot service the debt that they've, they've taken on. Uh, there's going to be a lot of damage in this industry. These companies were not spitting out positive free cash flow with oil at 100 a barrel. So at 50, uh, that's just a sea of red ink all of a sudden. So we've gone through this cycle before. I remember back in 1986 when oil dropped to $10 a barrel. And even in 2008, it went from 147 down to about $30 a barrel or so. And you had these big contractions. Is this going to be the same kind of thing on an even bigger scale? Well, it is because most of the world's projects that are out there, you know, it was all the way back in February of 2014, pretty much a year ago, when the seven major oil companies all announced that they were cutting their capital expenditures because they couldn't both find new oil revenues uh, from new production and pay shareholder dividends. Something had to give. 
they chose dividends to preserve and they jettisoned a whole lot of capital expenditures. That was with Brent Oil at over 110 a barrel. You know uh, that they're, they're absolutely just taking the axe to all their projects right now because the projects that are left, they're ultra deep water. You know, these are things in 5,000, 6,000 feet of water. The, the oil's down 20 more thousand feet. Very difficult projects. They're in uh, the Arctic. They're, they're very capital expensive, intensive projects. So they're cutting them like crazy. We need those projects to be done, though, if we want to have oil coming out of the ground in the future, because what's happening here, Jordan, constantly, is that all of the existing oil fields in the world are running down. They're depleting. And the way we we stay steady in this story is by continuing to pour massive amounts of new investment into new oil production. That's what's what's at risk here. So give me the scenario of what's going to happen. So that's the theory, but the reality now is that all these companies, both the majors and the minors, are cutting back and will continue to cut back on capital production, and um, the shale companies are going to get in trouble because of all the debt you said. So we're going to have a massive contraction in the oil industry, which will ultimately mean less supply. And at that point, and the demand is pretty much constant, you're saying, at that point you have a big upward shock in, in uh, energy prices? Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. And, and the, only, the only possible way that we're going to get more oil coming out of the ground is to get the price in the shale plays. I think it's a minimum of 70 or 80 a barrel, I've read a lot of numbers that go as low as 25. They're, they're junk, junk analysis. Minimum 70, 80, just to have those be self-sustaining operations. But in order for the full cycle cost of those wells, that includes the eventual abandonment of the wells, the infrastructure damages that happens to roads and bridges being paid, to have the full cycle cost uh, really be contained, I think you need a price of about 120 a barrel. And, well, and, and some countries even more, like I heard... Venezuela is like 140 or something like that to be viable. Right. And, and you know, there's a lot of countries that tied uh, their stakes to the price of oil. So when it wasn't that long ago, it was a decade that oil was at 30, 40. These countries were okay. It shoots up to 100 and all of a sudden they expand and balloon their, their budgets and tie more to them. And now they're in deep trouble because expanding is easy, cutting's hard. Yeah, Venezuela needs 150, 60 a barrel. Uh, Saudi Arabia needs 110, 20. Russia, probably the same number because 40, 50, 60, 70, 80% of their federal budgets are uh, linked to oil revenues, and now those are gone. So, what's going to happen to Russia, Iran, Algeria, Nigeria, uh, Venezuela, uh, Iraq, all, all these places that are major oil producers? What's going to happen? Is, are there going to be revolutions there when they have to cut back on spending? It's very destabilizing when when your federal um, budgets get into a lot of trouble. So, you know, we've seen this. Mexico has gone through this cycle a couple of times. It, it becomes uh, politically destabilizing. The existing government has to suddenly lash around for uh, either vast amounts of new borrowing or they have to hike taxes, both of which can be tricky things to pull off. And uh, it just creates a bit of a a bit of a moment of instability. But we saw this in Egypt. In 2010, Egypt switched for the first time in history from becoming a net energy exporter to a net energy importer. One year later, they were having their revolutions there in, in Tahir Square. So, so these things uh, do uh, have a cause and effect sort of a relationship. The best we can say is that prices, oil prices here in the, at $50 a barrel um, are destabilizing to a lot of regimes out there. So what are the investment implications of the scenario we've just talked about? It sounds like in the long run, the remaining oil companies are going to do very well when prices go up, although there'll be a lot of carnage along the way. But what would be your way to play this both in stocks and mutual funds and ETFs? Well, the way I'm personally looking to play this is to uh, understand that this isn't the time to be investing in just a broad-based energy ETF or anything like that. Now you have to get back to fundamentals. It's time to pick individual companies. There are some out there that are run very well. They're in a much better position with respect to the acreage that they happen to have in the core plays, the amount of debt that they're carrying, uh, the amount of oil they manage to get out of wells. Some companies do that extremely well, others less well. So you mentioned carnage. I'm looking for a lot of bankruptcies uh, to, to occur in this space, and we're going to see how the pieces get reassembled. But there will be some pretty big winners in that story, and, and oil prices have to go back up to the marginal cost of production. That, to me, is just a guarantee. I don't know when. Uh, you know, That's a little dependent on how the world economy does, but there's no commodity as important as oil that can stay below its marginal cost of production, and it costs at least 80 bucks to get a new barrel out of the ground these days. 
Yeah. So, uh, would you, as far as investing, you'd stay away from the smaller leverage plays. Would this be a time to go into the big integrated oils that are going to be financially stronger and be able to survive? It, it could be, but I'm still waiting at this point in time. I, I don't know how long and how low. Everything depends on how long oil stays at this price or even goes lower. If, it just, if it's just down here for another month or two, I'm jumping back in. But if it six, sits down here for, oh, I don't know, 6, 8, 12 months or something like that, uh, we're, it, there could be the carnage could go a lot deeper than people expect. In the infrastructure, that's part of it, right, is the people and the equipment uh, and the abandoned wells and all that. It takes a while to recover from that. Well, it does. You know, these the the threads go very wide and deep in this. You know, the service companies absolutely get killed the quickest, fastest because uh, they're the ones who are, uh, you know, in the position of having to cut their prices very rapidly in order to stay in business and to keep their workers occupied. Uh, we've already seen this happen and play out in uh, some of the key stocks that are out there. The oil services companies are are really getting shellacked uh, uh, much more so than some of the producer companies, but. The prices of the the stock prices of the oil producing companies has not yet caught down to the price of oil. There's still a lot of hope uh, embedded in those prices that oil is going to rebound and rebound quickly, but it's not doing it yet. Now, in your book, you talk about other shocks coming to the system. One of them being population growth, and you have these kind of uh, hockey stick <laughs> lines, I guess you might say, showing how the population is growing. What are the implications of population growth around the world uh, for investors these days? Well, this is a really interesting period of time to be alive. You know, I, I was born in 1962, and there were three billion people on the planet, and now there's seven. So I've been through one full doubling and then some. And uh, by 2050, and uh, you know, I might make it to be that that old. And you get to 2050, and there will be nine billion people, according to most estimates. So this is a period where. Just given the trajectory, we're going to go from 7 to 9 billion, another 2 billion people. The most worrisome statistic I know about, or perhaps the, most, the one with, with the greatest challenge built in, is that right now there are 1 billion people on the planet, 1 billion, who are living a middle-class lifestyle. And by 2030, there's supposed to be 3 billion people. China rapidly bringing people up into the middle class. India, same story. And when people move from that lower to the middle class, the, the, the demand on resources is extraordinary. And so a lot of my book and a lot of my framing is around this idea that the resources per person that we've got on the planet are no longer capable of expanding like they used to. And we built a whole economy around uh, resources just being this thing you could ignore. You know, you just had supply, you just had demand and price, and then supply just magically showed up as the plug in that equation. And that's no longer true, but most central banks haven't figured that out. Most governments haven't figured that out. Some companies have, certain individuals have. But that's a really big story that's uh, a really big phase change, and that's happening right now. So that was the reason why commodity prices went up so much, because they had to supply China and India's growing middle class. But that seems to have slowed down dramatically now, oil being one of them, but copper and aluminum and just about every other resource had gone up on the anticipation of Chinese and Indian middle-class demand. What has changed that that is not happening anymore right now? Well, the big story in this is China. So the big four that I track that let, sort of give me a read on where the global macroeconomic situation is, I, I got to be honest, Jordan, I don't trust official government statistics that much. Um, uh, not from the United States, not from China, not from anybody. I really prefer in this day and age to go by, by as hard a data as I can find. So the best data I know to track the global economic environment is coal, oil, iron ore, and copper. And all four of those are down a lot in the last year. That tells me mostly, and China was the predominant consumer of, of, uh, or driver of new demand for all four of those. Plus, we might throw cement in there as a fifth, but that, that one's less certain for me. Anyway, China has been consuming a lot of those. They built a lot of ghost cities. They went through this whole giant industrial expansion phase. They built just massive amounts of buildings. And uh, the, the data I see from, from the big four commodities are telling me that that story has run its course. And so that's over for now. And, uh, and it remains to be seen how China is going to manage probably one of the most horrendous property bubbles ever to be witnessed on the face of the planet. Not clear to me how they're going to get through that one. Uh, you know, they're, they're a very different country, so maybe they just tell people to ignore it or they sweep it under the rug or <laughs> who knows what they're going to do with it. But it, it's, it's a doozy. 
these ghost cities are really quite scary. That they a huge amount of resources to build those things, and as you say, they're kind of empty. They're basically owned as investments, but hardly anybody's living in these things. What is going to happen to those cities? Well, they're rotting away. You know, houses really are a depreciating uh, asset. I, I I think of houses and real estate as a liability, not an asset. You know, it's not a thing that magically increases in value. You got to pour money into those things. They they take money. They don't give money, um, and so. They're depreciating. The, the metric that I track most when I'm looking at real estate is price to income. You know, what is the median price of a home or a residential dwelling? What's the median income of a person living in that region? When you get up to a level of around five, you know, the price is five times median income, starting to get a little squirmy. By the time we're up to six or seven, it's bad. You know, by the time we're up to eight or nine, uh, on that metric, you've got a full-blown uh, bubble on your hands. By the time you get into double digits, if you're 10 or higher, uh, the red lights should be just flashing like crazy. China has uh, 30 major cities or lo- localities where that, in- that ratio is over 20. And it's just wow. extraordinary. <laughs> and I don't, no, 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 no real estate bubble has ever managed to, to uh, do anything but burst uh, coming from levels that were far less than that. I see. Very good. All right. We're going to take a break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Chris Martinson. Uh, He's got a new book out called The Crash Course, The Unsustainable Future of Our Economy, Energy, and Environment. And his website is peakprosperity.com. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Listen for exclusive clips from Oprah's upcoming Super Soul Sunday series on Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America 7th Wave channel. Then be sure to watch Oprah's Super Soul Sunday on OWN Network TV at 11 a.m. 10 Central every Sunday. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Chris Martinson. Uh, He is the author of a new book called The Crash Course, The Unsustainable Future of Our Economy, Energy, and Environment. And he has a website, peakprosperity.com. Welcome back to the show, Chris. Thank you, Jordan. And tell people a little bit more about what they can find at peakprosperity.com as far as a free newsletter and videos and other things. Yeah, we have uh, people can come to the site and tour around anonymously. If they register, we have a, a free weekly newsletter that goes out. And we also have premium content there. We have a subscription side of the business where uh, we have more in-depth content. If people are interested in following the world in the way we do, we basically are constantly uh, scouting the news and and trying to make sense of it and and whittling it down to actionable information. That's what we care about most. And what was the video you said is is available there? Right. So everything that we've been talking about, there's a large framework. Uh, The crash course is is this framework that says, look, you can't just look at the economy anymore. You can't just look at that and energy, but 
you have to include the environment. You have to look at all three at once. So we have something called the Accelerated Crash Course that we just put out. It's uh, 53 minutes long, but it, it covers a lot of territory. And it goes through those three big blocks plus what you can do about it and what the implications are. That's a very popular piece that people have you know, forwarded around and sent to people, and it's, it's uh, in a bunch of languages. and It's a very condensed way to get this, this information. And then we have a longer crash course, which is now 26 chapters long, and, and uh, a lot of uh, uh, goes into much more detail around all of these areas. So we're all about the content. We think that people really deserve and need to understand the context of where we are right now because the, the mainstream news is really not doing a good job keeping us informed. And again, that website is peakprosperity.com. So let's get back to China. We were talking about before the break. So you have this massive bubble uh, with uh, prices way higher than people's incomes to support it. How would you invest in that to take advantage of clearly what you see is going to be a popping of that bubble? Well, that's tricky to do directly, but indirectly, this is pretty easy to, to, to take a peek at. Australia is enormously exposed to this. Australia is basically a, a third world exporting nation to China, and you know, third world in the sense that they strip the iron ore out of the ground and they ship it in, in, uh, to China in raw form, and China turns it to steel. Coal exiting Australia for the same reason. So Australia has been through a massive property bubble of its own. Uh, it's got, uh, I think, a very extended, I think their currency is a little overvalued, and I think their stock market is overvalued. Australia goes as China goes. So it's a little bit easier to figure out how to play uh, in, in that environment. China's a lot trickier. I, I would uh, personally stay away from it because you never know what the authorities are going to do there. Uh, so it, it's a little bit harder to, to figure out exactly um, what to do and, and how to do it there. So I've stayed away from China directly, but I'm looking at both Canada and Australia uh, to throw so, Canada so would, into the mix. So would you short Australian stocks or ETFs, or how would you play it through Australia? Yeah, that would be one way. It would, would be just to say Australia's going to have a, a decline. Australia's got home building companies. They've got um, uh, their general stock market, particularly on the mining sector, is heavily exposed to uh, what's coming down the pike. So in my view, I don't think China has, a, 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 you know, as worried as I am, they'll have some crazy official response. I don't, Jordan, I don't know how they fix a property bubble that's just so overdone as the one they have without going through a corrective phase. And the corrective phase is going to be, we're not going to build anything for a number of years. That's absolutely, you know, with all of the excess capacity that came online with respect to iron ore, coal production, uh, and uh, for copper production, there's just too much of that stuff out there right now, given one of the largest markets for that in the world is probably, in my estimation, going to shut down for a year or two or more as so they work off the oversupply. Of, a lot of unemployment in China, then, if they're not building new projects and uh, all of what's been going on stops. Absolutely, and this is why you have to worry that, that they're going to continue to be foolish and build anyway because China has a long history that when people get out of work, that, that, becomes, that, that becomes their form of social instability, and they will avoid that at all costs. Hmm. Okay, that's, that's exciting. <laughs> we have all these exciting <laughs> things happening. Uh, you talk about the environment again. So what, what, are the, what uh, excesses are building up in the environment worldwide? People certainly talk about global warming, but... What would you say are the excesses, and, and how would you play that as an investor? Well, there's a, a number of things. The biggest are, uh, you know, looking at food and water. It all gets down to the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that pyramid, you know. People want food, water, shelter, warmth, you know. And mm -hmm. uh, starting with water, there's uh, just a number of areas of the world which have huge populations parked on top of them where they're using water that's coming out of the ground from aquifers, and those aquifers are depleting at a far faster rate than they can be recharged. And instead of doing something responsible around that, we're seeing almost every single one of those areas is instead putting more people on top of those same aquifers and drawing more water out. And this has enormous implications, not just for the water directly that's going to be a problem, but for the food that gets produced off of that water when it gets pulled up. Thinking about food and how food moves around the world, it's really actually more accurate to think of it as water that moves across the world. When we grow wheat in the United States, there's about 1,000 tons of water baked in a ton of wheat. So when China imports a ton of wheat, it's kind of like they're importing 1,000 tons of water instead. And, and so when we look at the overall situation with food, we notice a number of trends. Uh, one, there's 
less and less soil in the world because a lot of farming practices uh, reduce the soil to, to something not living and, and actually degrade it and secondarily lose it, either just wind or, or water erosion. And, um, and the UN projects that we're going to have to double our food production in the next 30, 40 years to help us with both the growing middle class and the expanding population base. And that's going to be a really tall order because pretty much every place that can be farmed is being farmed already. We're degrading the soils in those spots. We're losing the water that we need to irrigate in, in those areas. So there's just a huge challenge coming up. The opportunity on that is to start uh, understanding as investors that how we're currently valuing water and soil, I think, is undervalued by a lot. And so uh, we're actively steering people towards investments uh, such as Farmland LP, which operates in the United States. They find abused sort of industrially farmed land. They spend the capital required to bring it back up to organic certification, meaning they're building the soils up, getting premium pricing for higher quality products. Farmers win. The environment wins. Uh, uh, it's a good investment. So we find that there are good investments around this, but first you have to understand what the larger theme is. We think that, that food is going to become increasingly difficult to produce in the quantities the world needs or wants in the coming decades. So the idea is that the remaining land becomes more valuable as you lose existing arable land, and that's why something like this farmland would be a good play. Right, and it's not just, it's not just having the land, but it's how it's being managed. Look, here's the, here's the great part. As humans, we have the capability to manage farmland in a way that actually improves it at 100 times the rate nature could alone, because we can do that. So there are farming practices that build soils and make the earth more uh, regenerative and healthy and produce higher quality foods, all of that. Unfortunately, that's not how most of our land is farmed. You know, it's just you, you put the corn in, you spray some pesticides and herbicides on there, you put nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium on, hope it rains, right? Uh, that, that creates a, a sterile sort of strip-mined sort of an operation as far as the soil is concerned. There are other ways to do that, and that's exciting is watching these new business opportunities see that and can do that. It, it, it feels good, and the returns are good, and it makes sense. I actually think that's the wave of the future. In addition to this farmland LP, are there some other investment plays on what you just talked about as far as improving the productivity of land? Well, this is where, you know, one of the things that we do heavily at Peak Prosperity is, is work to uh, uh, redefine the word investment. You know, when I, was, when I started this show with you, I said, look, you know, I, I was watching my investments get crushed. Uh, they were typical investments, right? I earned money and I sent it off to Wall Street and I hope for the best. And um, uh, now we're, we're helping people understand that, that investments in many cases are things that you can get. Uh, in fact, the best ones are ones that you can get to know and get involved with that are, you can touch, see, and feel. They're in your local area. So I am personally investing in the people I know and see around me who are working in ways like this. And this is harder investing, right? This isn't just click a button, buy an ETF, and cross your fingers. This means you got to know the people, understand the business plan, look at their cash flows, do some work. But to me, that, those forms of investments, there are fantastic investments that exist out there right now that people can get involved in immediately that have very high returns. And, uh, and, and those are ones that we really support. You have a chapter in your book called Why Technology Can't Fix This, because the image would be, like in the food area, that we've had dramatic increase in productivity of seeds and fertilizer and so on, um, and the same with water and all these things. Why is it that technology cannot be our salvation in all these areas? Well, it, so a lot of times, you know, the, the key to this whole story is, is energy. And technology can help us find a source of energy. It can help us find a deep coal seam or find another... 3D seismic mapped, you know, oil pool somewhere down there. But what technology has not yet been able to do is create energy. It can help us use it more effectively, can help us use it more efficiently. So when we actually look at the amount of energy that's out there and how much we use, so we measure this in BTUs, British thermal units. I don't know why, but it's how, how they like to do it. And you measure how many of those, millions of BTUs, billions, quadrillions. Well, the world is consuming you know, 700 quadrillion BTUs of energy every year, 80% of that comes from fossil fuels. And so when people will say to me, Chris, come on, you know, we, we've had this 100% increase in solar growth. Look at, uh, look at Germany's use of solar technology to, to help get harvest energy from the sun. Um, and I look at that and when, yeah, it's true, solar went up by 100%. 
coal went up by 7% over the same year. And uh, that amount of coal energy was vastly more than the increase from the solar side, just because the base is so much larger. And so when I'm looking at this, I, Jordan, can't yet see that we as a species or as a nation have gotten serious to the point of saying, look, someday these fossil fuels run out. Either we self-limit because we're worried about environmental impacts or they just become too expensive or something happens. And we're not going to, or they just simply run out at some point in the future. But uh, what we should be doing is saying, how, how many BTUs of this, say, natural gas are we going to burn? How many do we have? And where do we want to go? Where would we like to be? And we use that energy to create that next energy infrastructure, which, by the way, would be I'd be all for it. You know, we, we'll, we'll need a smart grid. We'll need uh, distributed uh, generation capabilities for electricity instead of the big nuke plants. Maybe we have smaller ones or we have other things. We've got solar. Who knows? But that is going to require an extraordinary amount of investment, and that's not happening under business as usual. Uh, and so that's, that's my critique is that you know, even right now we have technologies that we could use on the table that were developed decades ago that people should be using that make all the sense in the world and we're not using them yet. So a couple things when I say technology can't fix this, um, technology alone can't. You have to have the political will and people have to have the right story in mind, that narrative that says we maybe need to start doing things differently. Without that, you could have all the great technology in the world, but people aren't going to use it. And that's true in our country. We, have, we can build, if we choose, buildings that uh, actually consume zero energy after they've been constructed. We could do that. We can heat hot water from the sun uh, very, very well using 1970s technology, solar thermal heaters. They work great. They make financial sense, political sense, environmental sense. They make sense from every direction. But we don't have them on very many buildings yet. Why? It has nothing to do with the technology, has nothing to do with it being... Politics. <laughs> it's something else. Yeah, it's yeah. just something. So that's the stuff we have to really uh, change. And, and, and I, my critique is that people are hoping that technology will come and save us. And my answer is it can't unless we're ready to use it. Very good. We're going to take a break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest for this hour is Chris Martinson. His new book is called The Crash Course, The Unsustainable Future of our economy, energy, and environment, and his website is peakprosperity.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. What does conscious leadership mean to you? It unites organizations instead of dividing them. By exploring commonly based business challenges, it guarantees an increase in your bottom line. Tune in to Minding Our Business, Creating a Spiritual Economy with your host, Nadine Rogers. Each week, we'll hear from business leaders and learn from their strategies. We'll talk about personal and organizational best practices that you can learn from, and we'll hear from you. Minding Our Business airs live Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. 
You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Chris Martinson. He's the author of a new book called The Crash Course, The Unsustainable Future of Our Economy, Energy, and Environment. And his website, you can find out more, is peakprosperity.com. Welcome back to the show, Chris. Thank you, Jordan. We've talked about energy. We've talked about environment. We've talked about farming. We've talked about water. But one area that's grown a lot that you're very concerned about is debt. So kind of give us a sense of how much debt has grown and, and why you think that's unsustainable going forward. Absolutely. Well, this is this is the cornerstone of my critique of of why I think we're really on an unsustainable course here in the United States. This could apply to other countries. And it works like this. We look at total credit market debt. That's everything, not just federal debt. I'm not just talking federal debt. I'm not one of those guys. It's federal debt, state debt, local debt, corporate, household. It's everything. Student loans, auto loans, credit cards, everything. Just debt, not liabilities that are unfunded, just debt. We look at that and we ask the question, well, it's not how much debt you have. It's your debt to your income, right? So keeping debt to income in a ratio is something you understand, your listeners understand, I understand you have to do as a household, as an individual. But as a nation, you still have to kind of manage that. And here's the story that, that, that has me concerned. Starting about 1980, we departed from hundreds of years of, of financial history as a nation and started piling up our total credit market debt at roughly twice the rate of our underlying income. So credit market debt from 1980 to 2008 compounded at 8% annually. doesn't sound like a lot, but it means that what is that? Uh, every uh, 12 years or so, you have twice as much debt in the system as you had before. And our economy was growing at about 4%. So when your, income, when your debt's growing at 8% and your income's growing at 4%, those two things just get wider and farther and farther apart. Now, we've been down this road in, in other countries in history. We know how this ends because debt is a claim on future money. Money is a claim on stuff means that there's just too many claims on too little stuff, you know, just not enough stuff out there. So our belief at peak prosperity is that those, those go through resets. Only, there's only two ways to solve this. One, your income grows like crazy and catches up to the debt, or the debt has to be repudiated in some way. It either goes into default or you go through an inflationary epic. It's one and of those you're two starting, things happens. You're, you're starting to see that already. You've seen Argentina default on its debt. Russia looks like it may... Venezuela, other places, and, and the whole 2008 housing debt. was. So you're saying that, that the beginning of that cycle has begun. It has, and, and it's, it starts from the outside in. The weaker players uh, get hit first. Obviously, junk debt gets hit before, you know, double B debt and so on up the chain. So we're seeing that. It's not surprising to see Venezuela, Argentina going first. But in, in the way we look at the story, we think that that goes all the way to the center and that, that just because it starts at the edge – it still could go to the center. So here's how people historically have gotten ruined by that. They've kept all their money in the system. And as the system started going through these defaults, they just started losing money like crazy. And, and so we believe that you know, the only way that we know that history has is, is given us is an out, is a way to ride that storm out, as it were, is to not have all your financial eggs just in the financial basket. You've got to have your wealth spread into other forms of wealth. And so we love productive assets. We love things. We mentioned farmland. That's a form of what we might call a living asset. It's, it's, it's a, a, a wonderful living asset. There are material assets you can buy. We love productive enterprises. We think they're going to be fantastic investment opportunities in the energy space once we see how this uh, all starts to play out a little bit uh, as we go so forward. Remaining survivor. There's going to be carnage in the short term, but profits in the long run. In, in a lot of the spaces we've talked about here, farming, energy, and so on. Absolutely. And, and the key to knowing where and how to position in this, it's a very complex story, but, but there's, a, there's giant structural changes that are happening. And we think one of the biggest ones is going to be economically, we can't grow our debts faster than our income. That, there's going to have to be a truing up. Either you go through this horrible period of austerity or the government tries to print its way out. But at the moment, for example, in Europe, they're doing both. They're doing austerity and printing their way out. Yeah, they're, they're not really printing as much as most people think. Uh, you know, this, the balance sheet of the central bank is not really expanding. They're, they're talking about it, but yeah, again, I'm a data guy. 
they're just beginning quantitative easing in Europe where we've ended it here. So you said this has happened before. How does the story usually end? Give us an example, maybe, I don't know, the British Empire, the Roman Empire. Give me an example of how this has ended in the past. Sure. Weimar Germany is a, a recent example. People have seen the pictures of people with wheelbarrows of money, shoveling them into furnaces because the money was mm-hmm. worth more to burn. Right? So what happened there was, again, too much printing relative to the amount of stuff that they had. And so all of the financial wealth went poof and people were destroyed. And you read books on it and they call about it was a great wealth destruction. This is wrong. It was a wealth transfer. This is what we're most interested in educating people about. And you'll notice that from 1918 to 1923, when this inflation raged and burned itself out, all these middle class people got absolutely wiped out. Saw it in Argentina 2001. All these middle class people that begging for food, right? Just wiped out. But what happened was, if you paid attention, there's still just as many people in the country, just as many factories, houses, hotels, and acres of farmland. The real assets were still all there. But who owned them changed hands enormously. So we're a big believer that when you get into a deflationary uh, cycle or an inflationary cycle, you have to know which one you're going into. It looks to me like we're heading deflation at this point in time. Cash is king. Wait and have a list of things that you, you would really like to be an owner of and then be ready to swoop in and buy them when nobody else is willing to. That's kind of how we're positioning ourselves at this point and in time. It's not only stocks, but physically buying farmland and buying actual assets, not just the stocks owning those, correct? Absolutely. I, I happen to have my eye on uh, Timberland. I think that's going to be one of the more fantastic investments uh, going forward. And, uh, but it could be uh, you know, choice real estate, good cash flowing properties, whatever those happen to be. Um, I'm not a big fan at this stage, given with everything, the, the, the exurb malls that are far out you know, for a lot of reasons. Kids aren't shopping in malls anymore, and people don't travel to shop anymore. They click and get the big brown truck of happiness to roll up the driveway. So, yeah. so you have to know these big changes that are coming. But really, you know, to make it simple, during a wealth transfer, you just don't want to be holding financial assets. You want to be holding real assets as much you, as possible. You're one of the ones where the wealth is transferred to instead of from, I guess is the way to put it. Correct. There's, it's a zero-sum game. Make sure you're on the right side of the line. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Chris Martinson. His new book is called The Crash Course, The Unsustainable Future of Our Economy, Energy, and Environment. You can find out more about this at that or at his website, which is peakprosperity.com. He's got a free newsletter and video there. You can find out more. Thanks so much. It's been quite fascinating, Chris. Thank you, Jordan. Pleasure's been mine. Thanks again, and we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.